is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. The robots are here. A Tasmanian farm has imported robot pickers. They're a little slow, but does that matter? They don't pick as fast as a human, but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage. <laughs> a little blunt. I wonder what you think of that. You can tell us at 0467 842 to text. We'll look ahead at prices with the massive sheep flock in Australia continuing to build. And how long was the Varroa destructor mite in Australia before it was found in New South Wales? You know, it was in the country before it was detected on the 20, 22nd of June, maybe couldn't be a year or so before that. That answer coming from Senate Estimates. We'll take you there today on the program. Next, though, we'll head to Gippsland, where the final decision has been made on the future of Australia's last white paper manufacturer. More on that soon. Here's Angus Verley, though, with Rural News. Angus. Thanks, Was A new report from the left-wing think tank, the Australia Institute, shows life expectancy for people living in the far west of New South Wales is almost six years less than for people in Sydney. Called The Unlucky Country, the report was written by Kate McBride, a pastoralist who was raised on the Lower Darling River and campaigned extensively during the last drought. She's moved to Canberra to work for the Institute and says the figures are not great. But this report paints a heartbreaking picture of the disparity in health between the far west of New South Wales and Sydney. And we really wanted to delve into this and have a look exactly what's going on because we often hear about suicide rates. And of course, that's their heartbreaking statistics. But there's a lot deeper that we could look at into life expectancy and premature deaths and, and other indicators of the health system out that way. And it's not pretty. People are two times more likely to die before the age of 75 out in the far west. But then we also looked at something called potentially avoidable deaths. And unfortunately, we're two and a half times more likely to see these potentially avoidable deaths. Australia's sheep flock is forecast to reach a 15-year high this year. Meat and Livestock Australia is estimating the flock will reach 78.75 million head. But with the industry still grappling with a skilled worker shortage, industry leaders are questioning how well equipped it is to handle the increased numbers. Stephen Tully, Ag Force's sheep, wool and goat president, says that's his concern. If, if we don't solve this problem, it, people are going through shearings this year, certainly went through last year, I had difficult times last year, and they're going, I don't want to go near a sheep again or I'm just going to go into a shedding breed. So it's certainly a big issue. We will be under pressure for a conceivable time and if there is a long time of wet weather or some other unforeseen thing, I mean COVID is one of those, then we will be under extreme pressure. A new plan for eradicating banana freckle from the Northern Territory has been approved by a national management group. The fungal disease re-emerged in the NT last year and has since been found on 52 properties. NT's Chief Plant Health Officer, Dr Anne Walters, says authorities still believe they can eradicate the disease. Uh, we're really confident that we've got it under control. We expect that we will find additional infected premises just because as we do more surveillance, we're expecting that we will find more properties, but um, that's obviously being covered off in the response plan and we are you know, anticipating that that will be the case. Peanut butter is an Australian pantry staple, but Australia imports more peanuts than it grows. A trial is underway on farms across northern Australia 
which could give growers an extra revenue stream if they plant peanuts. Tina Catrotta, Senior Lecturer at Central Queensland University, says researchers are in the second year of a trial to use the top of the plant as livestock feed. We're really excited with what's happened after this first year of trials. Uh, It's great to see some of the data coming in and it's really exciting to see that from taking an in-season cut of biomass that could be taken as cut and carry hay or could potentially in the future just be a livestock graze and a use of that biomass for livestock, that treatment has actually not had a particularly negative effect on the nut quality and yield that we're seeing at the end of the season. What's the benefit of having a crop that is dual purpose? There is a value that can be taken from the crop early in the season. So that's money in a farmer's pocket uh, before waiting the the maybe five months before you get a, a final product. Established in 1894, the Tilpa Hotel is considered one of the last remaining true bush pubs in Australia. Located alongside the Darling River, the November floods forced publican Phil Marnie and his wife Sharon to close the doors and leave town. But after three dry months, the tiny outback community watering hole reopened on Saturday. The levy bank kept the town and pub dry, but Phil says it took two weeks of work before the Marnies poured their first beer. Well, the water never got inside the pub, the levy. We did a bit of work with the community on the levy before we left, and that was the difference. If we hadn't have done that, the water would have got through. But, uh, yeah, the township itself, the pub and the flying doctor units and whatnot were all good but the amount of spiders and frogs and snakes and things was just and hornets you can't believe it like there was just a hornet's nest everywhere everywhere you looked (laughs) it doesn't take long for a place to become a ghost town because yeah like there was just spider webs what about the hip pocket was it much of a hit not having any income for that period oh geez yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to go for a couple of months with no income i can tell you that And was, that's it for Rural News. Doesn't sound like a fun place to be when you're cleaning out the spiders and frogs and so forth, but yeah, the Tilpa pub sounds like it would be a pretty good place to stop in on an adventure though, doesn't it? Thanks for that, Angus. Angus Verley there with Rural News. And I open the program telling you a story we're going to play today about four robot pickers going to a strawberry farm in Tasmania. Uh, Basically, you heard the grab saying, well, it doesn't matter if they're not fast because we don't have to pay them the minimum wage. Uh, I said that was a bit blunt. This text message says, Warwick, nothing wrong with being blunt if it's true. Rural people are pretty good at saying it how it is, in my opinion. Cheers, says that anonymous texter. You're not wrong with that. Thanks very much for your text. You can text us about that or any other story, or indeed give us a call, 1300 two or text 0467 Let's head to Gippsland now, though, on the program, because there's been confirmation that Australia's uh, last white paper manufacturer will permanently close. This ends months of speculation about the future of the Maryvale timber mill in the Latrobe Valley, and Madeline Spencer from ABC Gippsland can join you now she's been out there today and madeline you can bring us up can you bring us up to speed on this decision and what it means for the future of the mill absolutely so yes as you said it's uh sort of been months that workers have been waiting 120 workers had been stood down progressively since um the start of january so in sort of lots and we're kind of waiting for this decision to be made so 
Last night, Nippon uh, Paper, which is a Japanese company that owns the subsidiary Opal Australian Paper, which runs the Maryvale Mill here in the Latrobe Valley, uh, said that they will be getting out of the white side of the paper business, which was uh, very much expected amongst staff and union members, but um, still very disappointing for those workers who will be out of a job. Um, But it does mean that the brown side of the paper business will be set to continue at this point. Yeah, so that's really interesting to me too. So the, the, the announcement was effectively made in Japan and then took its time to, to filter back to the workforce yesterday in Australia. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, it was um, sort of notified by Nippon last night and then this morning uh, the unions here have been meeting with Opal Australia about what the next steps look like, what that means in terms of redundancies and exactly how many jobs they're looking at. So, this morning Opal um, documents that we've seen from Opal uh, showed that 156 jobs will be um, redundancies here Um, That's just in production. So we're still waiting to see. There was concerns from the Electrical Trades Union that about 50 workers um, from that section who work in maintenance and um, in in those trades might also be let go and that other staff might be as well. So it could be up to 200 or even more than that, but for certain it's 156 at the moment. Yeah, so have unions or workers or anyone else around the site had much to say today? Yes, so we were talking to um, a union... Uh, uh, organiser this morning here at Maryvale, Anthony Pavey, who um, is at the CFMEU, and he was saying, obviously, um, it was a decision they expected, but is still disappointing for staff. Um, Particularly, he was saying that there was staff who um, were still being hired up until right before the mill started doing these stand downs. So, there was staff who've only worked two shifts and then were told that they were out of a job, have left other jobs, and then sort of come here thinking they had a career and um, found out that that's not really what was going to be happening. And of course, the Victorian government has a policy to end native timber harvesting in the state by 2030. But has the government or any ministers had much to say about the announcement of this closure yet? Well, uh, Ben Carroll this morning said that, um, you know, they would be working to help transition staff um, and offering counselling and and free training. And they have been doing that. The government have been um, offering packages to workers who have been stood down since um, January to help support them through this time. Uh, But I guess at this point, we're still unsure exactly how that will continue and what exactly that will mean now that the decision's been made. And this doesn't mean the closure of the mill, as you said. It doesn't just produce white paper, does it? There, There are other products as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the brown paper side of the business is still set to continue at this point. So, you know, cardboard and um, other types of products, but that white paper production will stop, which means, yes, Australia now no longer manufactures any white paper products, um, which could have implications for the price, given now we'll just be relying on imports for those sorts of products. And you've been, as you said, at the site today. What does it look like around the site today with obviously this news probably filtering down yesterday evening? Yeah, well, look, um, I don't know what the site looks like normally, so I can't tell if it's a buzz or or less active than normal. But something I had noticed, I was trying to talk to workers who were coming in and out asking what their thoughts were and and whether they were being affected. Most of them hadn't been affected, so must be working in that other side of the business. But um, yeah, a lot of the workers have already been stood down, so they weren't able to attend the meeting this morning. Um, They were already sort of um, off-site, not doing other things. But um, yeah, definitely... um, Um, I guess, sort of solemn from some of those workers and, and the union members about finally having this decision handed down. 
Well, so the the workers that was sort of stood down and basically waiting to see what happens with the future of the the white paper manufacturing, they weren't even back to go to the meeting today. No, they weren't. So yeah, a lot of them were just yeah waiting at home to hear word of what this decision would would like coming through and what that would mean. So yeah, they weren't here with us at the moment, unfortunately. And and Madeline, as you say, countless words, countless speculation really over the last few months, uh, massive paper articles, lots of stories and so forth on the ABC, at least confirmation now, if not uh, being good news for, for those workers. But we'll have to see what happens from here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Maddie Spencer there, ABC Gippsland News reporter, taking you through What's happening at the Maryvale uh, timber mill today with the news that has come down, confirmed by the ABC, that uh, the white paper manufacturer will permanently close that part of its business. Australia will no longer make white paper in this country. You can let us know what you think about that as well. Send a text 0467 842 Let's move from Gippsland to Canberra now because some interesting news came out of Senate estimates where senators question uh, authorities. It was agriculture estimates yesterday evening went late into the night where authorities say the pest Varroa destructor mite could have been in Australia for up to a year before it was detected in New South Wales. The bee pest was first discovered at the port of Newcastle in June last year, and there are now 112 premises that have been infected since. At Senate estimates last night, Green Senator Peter Wish-Wilson questioned Dr Chris Locke from the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry about the response and investigations into the Varroa outbreak. The eradication response still falls under the national agreement that it's... Uh, that's so subject to decision-making by the National Management Group, which I chair, it's met now four times on Varroa mite. The last time was last Friday. Uh, New South Wales still view eradication as possible and there's been some positive developments uh, over Christmas with the opening up of hive mobility opportunities outside the, the containment zone, in the sort of general zone. Could I just drill down onto that sure. word possible? Um, would they view it as probable? Because I do think, the, yeah, eradication. I've seen yeah. the yeah, debate between containment versus eradication. But the Commonwealth last time, if I remember rightly, thought eradication was. It is, it is was the view likely. of the um, National Management Group, which includes all states and territories uh, in the Commonwealth, and there's about 15 industry participants that eradication is still possible. That, that is, it is possible. It's possible, but yeah. is, it, is it probable? Well, it's still it's still the preferred approach, which yeah. the strategy is supporting. Yep. There are now 112 infected uh, premises, and yeah. so the number has um, climbed a little bit, but uh, it's remained stable in the last week. There were a few detections recently. Um, and uh, most of well, those... Few, could you just give us the number again? Oh, I did read it. It went okay. from about 106 to 112. Okay. And the identification of these new premises um, was a result of intensive surveillance within the 10-kilometre eradication zone around infected hives. When you say surveillance, uh, um, are you talking about private property here? Are we also talking about traps in, uh, in national parks? And, and reserves and other... They've other all been linked properties. There has been some detections uh, which are a result of very localised spread, but there ha- hasn't been any um, detections in national parks that we've uh, been made aware of. 
We know there was an investigation, this is a joint investigation underway between Commonwealth and the New South Wales Government as to how this happened. Are we any closer to announcing, uh, announcing that? Yes, so Senator, um, so we have been talking to New South Wales about that and because and, uh, they've been leading the investigation, doing the interviews and doing the genomics testing and, and trying to interpret uh, likely causes of, or sites and durations of the incursion. As was presented to that inquiry, it is going to be imprecise, I think, the answer, but they're working on a number of different hypotheses, hypotheses at the moment, trying to narrow that down. Uh, I think the things they're seeing at the moment is, you know, it was in the country before it was detected on the 20, 22nd of June, maybe could even be a year or so before that, but we're trying to kind of provide that information they will be doing. They are doing compliance work as well. So there's there's a potential that some of the things they cover uncover by their tracking and tracing and interview work might lead to compliance activity. So there is a bit of sensitivity from a compliance angle as to what goes into the public domain. But we're trying to respond to that request uh, in the um, inquiry recommendation to certainly make it very clear what we know and what New South Wales government knows. So there's no investigation into a breach of Biosecurity Acts, federal, federal or otherwise. There's no nothing's been referred to. Uh, the so they're looking at about five or six different scenarios. So whether it came in by air, by port, whether um, it by came mail, off a hive, by mail. Yeah. So so exactly. So there's about five or six scenarios with different levels of likelihood that they're exploring and equating to the data they have. I think. Uh, the sense is it's not going to give an unequivocal answer, but it might. Is it, does that satisfy you, Dr Locke, given this is a very serious outbreak and the first well, of its kind? Well, I guess it's um, it's whether whether they can answer the question or not is really the question. So, I mean, it satisfies me that they're trying very hard to get to the bottom of it. That is Dr Chris Locke from the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries appearing in Senate estimates late last night uh, with other departmental staff um, and under questioning there from Green Senator Peter Wish-Wilson. Now, New South Wales has just updated the figures on the Varroa destructor mite outbreak in their state. And in just the few hours after that appearance in Senate estimates, two more properties have been added to the list. There are now 114 properties infected with varroa mite certainly a story that we'll have to follow qu- uh, closely even from across the border here in victoria in the in 2023 it'll have to be something we keep a close eye on that outbreak as you heard uh, efforts still to eradicate it are ongoing but uh, that is about as far as authorities say about that progress the victorian country hour with warwick long on abc radio victoria Meanwhile, the peak Australian grain growing body is warning that a glyphosate ban in the European Union, although half a world away, would still have a devastating impact on global food production and send shivers down the spines of Australian farmers. Glyphosate's approval in the EU will expire in December this year. And unless an extension is granted, as you heard on Australia's, uh, on yesterday, sorry, Country Hour, some people think. That's unlikely. Andrew Wiedemann is a Rapanyip farmer and research and development spokesperson with Grain Producers Australia. And he says the broad spectrum weed killer has transformed grain growing in Australia and around the world, providing weed control without the need to cultivate and eliminating the horror dust storms of the early 1980s. When it comes to glyphosate, obviously that's probably the world's choice in terms of weed control. 
And at the moment, the rest of the world and the rest of the exporting countries are all looking at it going, well, uh, that's fine, but it's going to have a huge impact on uh, the amount of grain that's available right across the globe if, if other countries and other exporting countries were forced to actually uh, ban and, and not use glyphosate in their farming systems. And I think you cast your mind, you're probably very young back in 82, but uh, I first came home on the farm uh, in that era and the dust storms that were around then, and you look at the way agriculture is today, uh, and the way that's transformed and the way that, that we're growing, the amount of grain that we're growing, it's all on the back, essentially, of the use of glyphosate. And just for the uninitiated, Andrew, can you explain why glyphosate is so important and why it's been so important in moving away from that that system where dust storms were a, a regular feature? Yeah, so look, it's a, it's a particular product that is obviously non-residual in terms of its uh, persistence. So... It's something that we use and, and have used quite successfully. It's essentially a salt uh, that's, uh, that's the product in the background of it. And so it is and has been proven uh, quite safe to use. And, uh, of course, there are plenty of people out there who, um, you know, think otherwise to that. But the reality is as a farmer that we're using it and other farmers that are using it is an extremely important product in our farming systems. And, you know, we would essentially halve or perhaps even less than half the uh, amount of grain that would be produced across Australia and also the impact, again, on uh, people even using it in their home gardens and other areas that have used it quite successfully for a very, very long time. And I feel will for quite a while yet um, because there is no other substitute for it globally. And, of course, people want to eat food. They don't want to starve. Mm, so in, in terms of substitutes, I mean, people talk about paraquat, but that's already banned in other markets as well. So is it really, does it really all hinge on, on access to glyphosate? Uh, look, in modern farming techniques today, absolutely, for no-till systems and minimum tillage. I mean, in the European Union, they're talking about going back and turning the plough again. So if you could imagine turning and ploughing up the country right across Australia, and particularly a lot of arid areas around very dry areas, it just wouldn't be sustainable. So we wouldn't be able to produce food uh, the way that we're doing it at the moment without a substitute for it. And look, certainly Paraquat, it's an S7, so it's a, a more volatile particular product, particularly for a user. Um, but in terms of its uh, longevity, we also need it because it provides the opportunity to be used in a rotational basis with glyphosate so we don't build up resistance to either product. I guess on the flip side, if you talk to the per a person in the street, there's a pretty good chance that they're, they're going to have the opinion that glyphosate is toxic and that it shouldn't be used. Uh, that's just anecdotal. But how do you change the, the general public's attitudes toward glyphosate? Well, look, I think it's about telling our story, um, really, and, and about just how successful food production is in Australia compared to other parts of the globe and, and the environment that we're working in. You know, we're trying to remain as sustainable as possible, Angus, and essentially you're looking at the key fabric for a lot of production systems here in Australia with us being able to use glyphosate because it's such an important product for us and for also the knowledge and safety for the way we produce food. And in other countries, glyphosate is being banned, not necessarily because the science dictates it, but because it's it's politically motivated. Are you confident that the science will continue to prevail in Australia? Uh, look, at this stage, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think just because one other section in the world decides to actually ban it, and it is clearly a motivated political motivation that's causing that, 
I would hope that uh, the people that are here, the governing bodies and the politicians are very aware of uh, our food production systems and we continue, obviously, while we're in Canberra, to talk to politicians because they come and go uh, and we need to keep the information in front of them about what we do and how we do it. And, uh, of course, we've got to remain vigilant to what's happening in other parts of the world, but we also need to be conscious about the impact it would have here as well. And, and I think that that's the, the key focus for us is purely that education and connection and making sure that the consumers understand where their food comes from and hopefully the, all of these things mean that we'll have a very, very successful farming system for a very long time and the ability to use glyphosate also for a very long time as well until we can find anything that might be a substitute for it, which to my knowledge hasn't been found yet. That's Andrew Wiedemann, Rapanya Farmer and Research and Development Spokesperson there with Grain Producers Australia talking about the future of glyphosate and what decisions the European Union might make as well where approval for the use of glyphosate will expire in December this year. And yes, we'll have to watch this space to find out if the EU grants an extension for the use of the weed killer or if it is phased out going into 2024. Something to watch here. You're listening to The Country Hour. Coming up on the program, we are going to have a look at sheep numbers and prices. Uh, Many of you asking with MLA's projections of 78.75 million sheep in Australia, what that means for prices this year. We'll have a look through that as well. Plus, we'll look at strawberry picking robots Yes, the variety at a farm in Tasmania. Hear how they work, what they cost soon on the program. Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Courtney Howe. Good afternoon, Courtney. Good afternoon, Warwick. Homicide squad detectives have charged a 54-year-old man following the death of a man in Dimbulla in January. The Dimbulla man was charged with one count of murder and has been remanded to appear at Horsham Magistrates Court in July. The charges follow the discovery of a 71-year-old man's body at a property in Victoria Street. The investigation remains ongoing. The Rural Doctors Association of Victoria says healthcare workers should be better incentivised to maintain maternity units in rural Victoria. Maternity units have been steadily closing across regional Australia as healthcare services struggle to hold on to staff. The association says the workload for healthcare workers in rural areas is unappealing to them. Mental health support for women in the Goulburn Valley has been boosted with a new service beginning in the region. Alfred Health, Goulburn Valley Health and Ramsey Healthcare have partnered to deliver the first-of-its-kind specialist women's mental health service, which will provide inpatient and at-home support for women. Food Bank Victoria is calling for more funding to help it support Victorian communities still affected by last year's floods. The organisation was awarded $750,000 by the state government last year as part of the disaster response. But Chief Commercial Officer Katie Fisher says the funding ran out in January. The government says the funding was to ensure flooded communities didn't experience food scarcity while supply chains were disrupted. And regional Victorian leg spinner Georgia Wareham has led Australia's women's cricket team to an eight-wicket victory over Bangladesh at the T20 World Cup in South Africa. Playing her first international in nearly 18 months, Walt Lake Export Wareham was named Player of the Match after taking three for 20. It helped keep Bangladesh to seven for 107, which Australia chased down with 10 balls remaining. And that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon was. 
Thanks for that, Courtney. Courtney Howe there with Regional News Headlines. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Just on the issue of the white paper mill closure in Gippsland, Paul says on the text line on 0467 842 722, locking up forests behind the mill closures is an own goal, an indictment of Labor and Green policy, says Paul. And on the issue of... Uh, robot pickers, which you're going to hear more about. You heard a, a little grab of the story earlier where the operator's like, well, they're slow, but we don't have to pay them the minimum wage. I said it was a fairly blunt way of putting it. Stephen from Curlwood says, hi, work. The workforce and unions only have themselves to blame. Farmers are forever trying to keep up with the constantly changing employment rules. Be brutally honest by all means, says Stephen from Kerwa. Look, in the world of broadcast journalism, we do like brutally honest uh, opinions as well, Stephen. It certainly makes for interesting radio and uh, easy to understand radio too. Thank you very much for your text. Let's go to Christy Johnson, always brutally honest about the weather, senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Christy. Good afternoon, Warren. <laughs> How's it looking out there today? Uh, look, it's pretty hot. Um, or it's on its way to getting pretty hot, uh, but not as hot as it will be in the coming days. So looking at top temperatures today, heading up into the mid-30s up in the Mallee at 36 at Mildura, 35 at Swan Hill. Elsewhere through the north, we're looking at 33 or 34 for most centres, uh, maybe 31 for Albury. Uh, down in the south, we're looking at mostly into the high 20s, maybe 28 at Bansdale or the low 30s. We've got uh, 30 at Sale and Warrnambool, 31 at Ballarat, 33 at Hamilton. So uh, a pretty warm day. Uh, we've got the winds going around northeasterly. Some of the parts of the coast, maybe the surf coast, the Gippsland coast, could be a little cooler, just in the high 20s um, with some afternoon sea breezes. But inland, a pretty warm day. Uh, not really much else to speak of, plenty of sunshine. Uh, tomorrow is going to be similar. It'll be a pretty warm night with temperatures in the high teens or maybe even low 20s. Um, in the overnight period, so for much of the night, temperatures will still be in the 20s, so pretty warm. And then getting up tomorrow, looking at getting into the high 30s or maybe even around 40 degree mark up in the, the north, so particularly the northwest, we've got 40 from Mildura, around uh, 38, 39 across most of the rest of uh, the northwest, 37, 38 through the rest of the north. And through the south, we're looking at uh, low to mid 30s, so uh, another hot day tomorrow as the winds go more northerly or north to northwesterly. The next uh, change that's going to come through on Friday does approach us tomorrow and it may just kick off a few showers or possibly even the odd rumble of thunder, possibly even some dry thunder um, over the southwest late in the day or late afternoon or through the evening. Uh, so that's just about the only interesting weather tomorrow apart from the heat. Uh, it'll be another warm night tomorrow night with, once again, overnight temperatures uh, in the low 20s or high teens, maybe even uh, mid-20s got uh, as high as 25 for Melbourne. Um, but, yeah, look, pretty warm overnight and then another hot one and, in fact, possibly the hottest day for, for much of the state. Uh, temperatures getting up into the low 40s through the north and the high 30s across most of the rest of the south. It will be the cool change day, though. So down in the southwest, where the cool change will come in a bit earlier, it'll be a bit cooler, just 26 for uh, Warrnambool, where the change will get there early, 31 for Hamilton. 
35 for Ballarat. Um, and that change will move across the southwest in the middle of the day. And then it looks like moving through the central district into the, in the middle of the afternoon and the Wimmera, and then through the sort of northwest and the northern country uh, late, um, late Friday or into the overnight period. Uh, and then it'll, and possibly parts of um, Gippsland as well. And then it'll move through the uh, East Gippsland and the northeast on Saturday. So that's the current sort of timings on that cool change. So what that means is that uh, parts of the west and uh, and south will be much cooler on uh, Saturday. Not cold. It's not really a, a cold front that's moving through, so it's not a really wintry burst of air. Um, it'll just be more of a wind change with the winds going around southwesterly. So we do. We've got temperatures dropping to the low to mid twenties in the south and the low thirties in the north. Perhaps a little bit hotter in the northeast where that. Um, front will still be clearing or the trough will still be clearing so it could still get to 35 at uh, Albury and Wangaratta on on Saturday. There will also potentially uh, be some showers and thunderstorms with the change through Friday and then in the east on Saturday so as that trough moves through. Um, Again not a lot of rainfall with them so uh, could could be again some dry lightning Um, um, yeah most of the rainfall evaporating before it hits the ground. So I suppose with dry lightning around and even some of this hot weather in the in the lead up and then the change, Christy, are we expecting fire weather warnings and so forth to be quite current over the next few days? Look, we are expecting high fire danger across a fair chunk of the state tomorrow and most of the state, apart from perhaps East Gippsland, on Friday. Um, and uh, some of the areas that are going to be really at the high end of that um, of that high fire danger, sort of the Wimmera, the North Central, Mallee, Northern Country, that north, western and northern part in particular. Um, we are at this stage not quite expecting to reach the extreme fire danger thresholds for a fire weather warning. So for that, we need to reach the extreme fire danger over 10% of a district to put out a warning. Um, and we're not quite at 10% uh, for the districts yet. We'll obviously watch that over coming days. It's possible that with any change in the timing of the front, any change in the, the wind strengths with the front, because that can really affect the fire danger, that we could end up with some fire weather warnings. But at this stage, it's just, um, you know, even if we don't actually get to warning criteria, we are looking at high end, high fire danger. Um, and so, yeah, just asking everyone to be to be really safe particularly with that risk of dry lightning around that could start some fires. Um, so, yeah, just to, to pay attention, have your, be aware of your um, survival plans and, uh, and just, yeah, follow all the, the sensible precautions um, in terms of fire safety. And have uh, your fan... Oh, yeah, sorry. Yep, continue. No, no. <laughs> I was just going to say, we do also have, speaking of the heat, we do have a heat wave warning as well. So um, the period, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, there's actually a low-intensity heat wave across the state, as you'd expect with the hot temperatures and the uh, warm overnight. And for some parts of the state, at the moment, it's, uh, it looks like mostly over parts of East Gippsland and a few smaller parts of West Gippsland, uh, Central and the Northern Country um, do have some areas where it's, it is diagnosed as severe heat wave conditions now, the only district that actually meets the criteria for a warning that enough of it is, is in the severe heat wave um, is the East Gippsland. So at the moment, the warning just covers East Gippsland, but it will be updated at about 3 o'clock this afternoon. So it may uh, extend to some more districts. Then we'll see um, the latest forecasts are marginally warmer than the, the ones um, 
yesterday that the, that assessment was made on. So uh, we'll be watching that. But either way, uh, low intensity heat waves, basically what we expect in summer, but can be dangerous, particularly for vulnerable people. And then the extreme heat wave can be vul- can be dangerous for anybody if you don't take precautions. So just yeah, asking people to be aware, check on your vulnerable neighbours and uh, and friends, and um, make sure you're staying cool. Make sure you're putting uh, water out for the animals and looking after your pets and all those sorts of things. So um, yeah, that's going to be an issue over the coming days. And too. I suppose with that warning, is because the temperatures aren't necessarily the highest of the high of, of what we probably usually get through summer, but it's it's the overnight temperatures really aren't getting down during these next few days for, for a lot of these areas. And, and that, I'd imagine, is adding to the concern there, yeah? Yeah, definitely. So the, the assessment, when we make a heat wave assessment, it's a combination of both the daytime temperatures and the, the overnight temperatures. Because if we don't get those cooler nighttime temperatures that gives the body a chance to recover, then the effects of the heat just build over the, over the three days. Um, and so that's where when, when we start to see it getting dangerous. So you're right, the overnight, uh, the, the warm overnight temperatures uh, really do contribute to the potential, um, the potential danger of, of the heat. Well, Christy, we thank you very much for taking us through the, the full forecast there and the warnings that are current and what to watch out for. Thanks, thanks again for coming on the country. No problem. Thanks, Warwick. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Christy Johnson, taking you through the forecast there. You're listening to the Country Hour. Many more of your texts are still coming in. This one was interesting. Even we've had this discussion over the couple of days on glyphosate uh, with warnings that could be banned in Europe and what that means for Australia, with Australian farmers already thinking about this. This texter says, We had French backpackers working in our vineyard a couple of years ago. When they heard we were going to use glyphosate, they left the property, I suppose that's an interesting thing to show uh, where opinions are and particularly public opinion could be in the EU ahead of making that decision on whether or not to extend the uh, right to use glyphosate in that jurisdiction at the end of this year. Something to watch out for. It's 18 to 1 here on the Country Hour. You're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Yeah, sheep numbers in Australia are booming and according to Grower Levy funded organisation Meat and Livestock Australia, the sheep numbers will hit 78.75 million head this year. That's nearly 15 million more sheep than just three years ago. Now, we heard from MLA yesterday about their outlook, but many of you had more questions on price and I said... We'll try and find some answers for you. Matt Dalgleish is a meat industry analyst with Episode 3, and he can join you now on the program to do just that. Welcome back to the country, Al. Thanks for having me, Warwick. 78.75 million sheep, 15 million more sheep in Australia this year than were here three years ago. Extraordinary figures from Meat and Livestock Australia. I want to talk to you about price, but should we start with the, the numbers itself? Do, do these forecasts sit right with your numbers? Uh, yeah, they do. In terms of the growth we've seen over the last few years, uh, anyone that's uh, out on the land would know how good a season we've had at the last few years in terms of rainfall uh, with this La Nina uh, kind of continuing for the third year in a row. Um, and when you look at... So there's a there's a ratio we look at at episode3.net that's the sheep turnoff ratio. That's down around 9% and that's the lowest it's been uh, in decades and it basically signals that there's been a really strong incentive to rebuild the flock and that's why we're seeing these big big numbers coming through 
um, after those those really good years we've had to be able to rebuild the flock. The question that our audience had that Meat and Livestock Australia really didn't want to answer yesterday was what does a bigger sheep flock mean for the price of sheep going forward? Have you been looking at this? Uh, oh, look, I mean, if you if you look back over the last few decades, Warwick, we have, we have seen this progressive increase to pricing for, for whether it's lamb or mutton. And what's driving that? If you, if, you look, if you go back far enough, you know, there were times, you know, more than a decade ago where you know the the annual lamb crop was around 15 16 million head we're now up over 20 million head in terms of you know what we what we've got um, being slaughtered each year yet the prices have increased steadily over those years and what's driving that is actually the growth in e- the export sector so there is still a lot of export demand for sheep meat globally and the forecast for that is still pretty robust when you look beyond this year and into the next few years. Um, and, and why that persists, I think, you know, this, even though we, we're increasing the flock size, we've still got a good chance that we're going to see pricing continue to climb higher as well um, because of that demand that's out there. So the price fundamentals for, for sheep meat is still quite strong despite there being so many more head in Australia. Yeah, that's right. And if you look at, say, if we, we pick on two countries, uh, one is our biggest competitor, New Zealand, just this year coming now is the first year in over a decade that they've increased their flock, um, and that's only going up by 0.2 of a percent. So it's it's pretty much going sideways, really. Um, but the last decade or so, they've been steadily reducing their flock size in New Zealand, and they're, they're our biggest competitor. And then you've got a country like the US who takes the bulk of our lamb product. Um, they've been also, over the last few decades, reducing the size of... They've got a, a sheep flock there. It's only small. Nowadays, at around 5 million head. But that's come down from about 8 million head, you know, 7 million head a few, a few, a few decades ago. So... Um, they've been reducing. Uh, I think their production there has kind of nearly gone down to a quarter, I think, of what it was you know, a couple of decades ago. And, and, and the drop in production there has coincided with the increase of imports of, of other sheep meat, mainly from Australia. So what about those who are buying lamb at the moment? Are there, is there still that demand from our export markets or are they turning to other proteins? Uh, no, there, there is. We did see. So, if you look at the pricing we saw with mutton, was one of the ones that came off towards the end of last year and early the start of twenty twenty three. Mutton pricing was a little bit depressed compared to lamb. Um, that was that was largely due to a, a bit of a slowdown in demand out of China because they're our biggest market for mutton. But they've kind of started the year strong again, and, and in terms of demand, so we've seen the pricing pick up again, and, and that that demonstrates, I guess, what I was saying at the outset that the the pricing domestically is very much in tune with what's happening in our export markets because you know you, if you look at the product uh, nowadays you know 70 to 75 percent of what we produce in Australia in terms of sheep meat gets exported so so what happens domestically is, is very much in the hands of how that export market plays out and so is China buying mutton at any great standard again uh yeah so the, the in january we had our strongest in terms of mutton exports to china we had our strongest january on record and that that even you know superseded the uh the very strong demand we saw in 2019 when they were going through that african swine fever issue uh and they had not much pork to consume and they were buying meat from everywhere else they could get it so so january compared to the five-year trend i think it was something like 28 percent above the five-year trend for january so it's a really strong start to the season for china so is that a further sign of the relaxing of the, the trade frictions between China and Australia too, and to have one of our biggest months of export of mutton to, to China being the first month of this year? 
Yeah, it, it, it is a good signal. And I think if you look across to the beef side as well, there's been reports um, just in the last few weeks that the flow of beef product, even though we've still got abattoirs that, are, that are, haven't got their access back, um, there was also uh, delays going through customs with Australian beef last year. So what was normally you know, taking two months to clear uh, is now getting through in a couple of weeks. Um, and that's a signal too that I think that you know, Chinese um, authorities are, are, are easing on some of that kind of uh, spotlight on Australian product and, and, and maybe a signal that we're hopefully about to get some access back for those abattoirs that have been, um, that have been kind of uh, banned from China for the last year or so. Matt Douglas from Episode 3 is with you on the country. Just before I let you go, Matt, we saw a really rocky end in terms of meat prices to the producer before the end of last year and to start this year, talking about well, beef, sheep and goats as well. Can you give us a, a quick summation of where the market stands at the moment uh, in February? What are we looking at to start this year? Yeah, so um, cattle markets open softer that first part of the year. Um, it has seemed to have found a bit of a base. And if you look across to the global price, I think currently the Australian pricing is probably just slightly undervalued. So I suspect we're going to see some support creep into the cattle market into the next kind of few months, first quarter of this year. Mutton open weak, but it's kind of regained some of its strength. Lamb, lamb pricing's been you know kind of sideways, um, other than say something like heavy lambs being in a bit of short supply. So they've been kind of performing quite well. But I think again, with, um, with the amount of rain we've been seeing in parts of the country, you know, I think that's, and the fact that it's still pretty green in some areas, uncharacteristically for this time of year, I think that's going to provide some support as we, as we head into, you know, kind of this first quarter for sheep and lamb pricing too. The goat market's an interesting one. I think, again, similar to what happened with mutton, we saw a, a big fall in pricing for goats uh, from about September through to November of last year, and that coincided with the U.S., which is our biggest market for goat exports. Their demand kind of waned a bit in the, in the final part of the year and, it, and, and the impact was felt locally in pricing. I think we've got to watch the US to see what happens with their economy this year. Uh, they look like they might be heading to a recession and that might potentially um, pose a few hiccups if, if they do go into a recessionary phase. But um, that's probably a bit too early to call. Um, so we have to just see how that plays out, I think, for the next um, month or so before we can see how it's going to, how it's going to impact goat pricing. Matt Douglas, thanks very much for joining us again on The Country Hour. Cheers, Warwick. Meat industry analyst uh, with episode three, Matt Dalgleish, taking you through his thoughts on sheep prices, particularly in light of MLA's recent pro- uh, projections for the sheep industry. Hey, some extra news coming out today for you this lunchtime, particularly for irrigators in northern Victoria. Uh, the first outlook has come out for next season's irrigation allocations, and it's basically saying there's a lot of water around. Can Paspi irrigators look like they'll start the season on a full high water um, allocation, 100% there. And the Murray, you're looking at starting at 80% of your allocation, Goulburn and Lodden systems on 75% of your allocation. And basically, uh, the resource manager from Gold Murray Water, uh, Mark Bailey, saying in a release uh, that all systems basically should get to 100% full allocation for, for high reliability water by mid-August. Uh, this year, which is really interesting to have a look at. And on the broken system, a little bit later, 100% by mid-October in that release. Certainly one to keep an eye out. We might try and bring you more information on that in the coming days. But let's talk robots now. Would you ever consider employing a robot 
for your business. With years of research behind them now, farmers are taking them seriously. A large berry farm in Tassie has shipped 16 robots out from the UK to pick strawberries, and they can do so roughly four strawberries every minute. So not the quickest, but site manager Eva Tildecrist explains how they work. A robot will uh, will uh, scan the crop and see if it can find any ripe berries, which is red berries of a certain degree that we have put in our settings. It will then try to find a clear vector so it can pick the berry, so it has to see the stalk clearly, and then it will attempt to pick it. Once it's picked the berry, it will dip it into a box in the middle of, of the chassis, which we call the inspection chamber, which has a 360-degree camera which take a photo all the way around that it would make a quality assessment and decide whether this is a good quality berry or if this has to be put in the waste bin and after that it will put it in a punnet in the tray on the edge of the robot so while it's scanning inside this uh, chamber it will also do an estimation of uh, how heavy is the berry so it will know what punnet in the tray it will put it on to reach the target punnet weight it travels on caterpillar tracks and uh, that way it can move in quite difficult terrain and you don't really have to prepare your, your ground for, to accommodate them. How much manual labour do you need to, to check on the progress of the robots, like emptying the trays or if, if little issues crop up and they, they stop moving? Not a whole lot. At the moment we're managing eight robots per person. That's hopefully going to go up to 12 towards the end of the season. How are they powered? two strong batteries inside them which uh, will give you a good good amount of uh, I think almost up to eight hours of running time and then we will bring them back into a shipping container charging station and charge them overnight. They're all connected to, uh, to a Wi-Fi system but that's more for us to be able to to remotely control them from their operators having a tablet in their head and, and they can have a good overview of how the robots are doing. They know how many berries they picked, they know if it's time to swap the trays out and uh, they can identify any fault coming up. But they're running on a, on a computer inside them. They're not just picking as they run up the road, they're obviously taking loads and loads of images to find where the berry is, but that, those images can also be pro- processed to determine the health of your crop and also do yield forecasting so you know how much harvest you expect in the future. They don't pick as fast as your staff here. No. So what's the financial advantage to having these robots? They don't pick as fast as a human, but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage, <laughs> to put it like that. And they're not a replacement for workforce, they're more of a, of a supplement for your capacity on your farm and economically it's a, it's a reliable way of, uh, of harvesting because you will know your cost of harvest because of the constant rate you're harvesting at. And obviously having many machines per operator will also bring the cost down. It's a peace of mind for the growers to have in case you can get the workforce needed. For example, last year we, when we had COVID, we just could not get enough people on the farm to do the work and we struggled to keep up with the harvest. And obviously robots don't get COVID, they don't roll an ankle, they, uh, they're pretty reliant workers. How often would the robots make a mistake? Pick a berry that's the wrong colour, for example. 
at the moment we're seeing about one every hundred berries, which is very, very low compared to human pickers. They do probably rather miss a few berries, which is something we're always working on, but they seem to pick a good good quality. It's a work in progress. It's, it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's something that gradually is going to be introduced into farming, I believe. Uh, same as uh, 150 years ago, no one would use a tractor or consider using a tractor for farming, and now it's a part of everyday farming life. That's Eva Tildecrest from UK company Dogtooth Technologies chatting to Larissa Smith about their robots. That'll be working on Tasmanian Farm 16 robots picking four strawberries every minute. I better get these markets in. Let's start today in Lean Gather with Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Brendan. G'day Warwick, there were 560 fewer at 1620 with the same large group of buyers operating in the Deera market in places. Quality was good with supply more limited. Trade cattle lifted 20 cents, bullocks eased slightly, heavy manufacturing steers lifted up to 5 cents. Cows sold from firm to 5 cents Deera with processors loading cows for an estimated 551 to 603 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls lifted 10 cents. Ground steers and bullocks sold from 358 to 390. Heavy Friesian steers 268 to 319. The crossbreds 310 to 372. Most light and medium weight cows 204 to 280. Heavy weights 255 to 315. Heavy bulls 275 to 315. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks, Brendan. Let's go to the sheep and lamb market reports. We'll start in Horsham. Good afternoon, Graham Palmer. Good afternoon, everyone. Lamb supply halved at 3,550 and sheep numbers were back at 2,350 head. Firm on the quality heavy and heavy trade weights. The plainer lambs easing 5 to $10 a head. Medium and heavy trade weights sold from 167 to 208. Heavy weights sold from 220 to 241. The unshorn lamb sold mostly from 131 to 148. Bree stockers paid from 80 to 161. Lightweight sold from 20 to 60. Sheep represented all weights and limited competition. They sold to an easier trend, back 10 to $20. Merino ewe sold to 125. Crossbreed ewe sold to 118. Light trade weight lamb sold from 142 to 170. It averaged 770 to 780. Medium trade weight sold from 167 to 192. They've averaged 750 to 800. Export weight lambs sold from 188 to 238, averaging 720 to 790. Extra heavy weight lambs sold from 220 to 241. Heavy hoggets made to 144. Rams sold to 35. And Graham Palmer at Horsham from LA. Thanks very much for that, Graham. Lucky last, Hamilton Lambs. Take it away, Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Agents yarded 7,756 lambs at Hamilton this week, a decrease of some 4,400, where the quality at the top end was similar to last week's offering, but then tailed off very quickly. Not all the regular processes were present, and those that were were not all fully active together. With a reduced store competition in a market that was fully firm to slightly softer for all lambs to the trade. However, lambs back to the paddock to be $15 to $20 per head cheaper. Top shorn lambs this week made to $229. The light to 12 to 16 kg lambs made from 45 to 125. Trade lambs 18 to 22, 129 to 175. They were making between 7.30 and 780 cents a kilo. The medium trade weights 22 to 26, 167 to 210. They also made between 7.30 and 780 cents. Heavy lambs still making around that. 
800 cents a kilo. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Chris. That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Uh, On tomorrow's Country Hour, not 100% confirmed yet, but I think we're going to have the head of one of the major dairy companies in Australia on the radio with you. So tune in then.